Hearts of Fire. Ginger's jewelry has a diamond there. Let's just say at my 10th wedding anniversary, we made a little trip. And I saw the perfection of that diamond, perfectly faceted, reflecting perfect color, perfectly clear. And if you haven't figured it out yet, it was perfect. It was also more than probably all of our houses combined in price. And therefore, I got an anniversary band instead. Just one example of how we show love in this world. When I was a little girl, I was a member of a wonderful church here in the valley. And the thing that made it so special was that it was truly like a family. My pastor was a devout man and yet was very warm and approachable. He had a deep, wonderful sense of humor, and yet a deep love of God all at the same time. His name was Sam. Doesn't that just sound preacherly? Sam, like a guy next door. Sam spent a lot of time with me. He encouraged me, and he became like my grandfather. And I wasn't the only one. There were many of us in the church that he did that for. He loved the teenagers, and he loved the kids, and he loved the adults. As a young child, I first learned what loving God entailed, and I learned it in that church, and I learned it through that man. The people of that church and that pastor were living models of the divine love relationship that we should expect to have with our Creator. They cared for one another, and they were warm, and they were giving. I accepted Christ when I was seven years old. I'd been thinking about it for several weeks, and I know that sounds young, but I don't know. Maybe I was just gifted in some way or something, but I knew what it was to want to accept Christ. The Holy Spirit had been stirring my soul for quite a while, and I knew that I wanted Christ in my heart. I didn't know all the theology. That came lots of years later. But that's okay. I didn't need to know all of the theology, and I didn't need to know about Baptist doctrine. I remember the morning I walked the aisle. I wasn't much shorter than I am now. <laughs> and I remember walking the aisle, and of course it was at a benediction, so everybody was standing. And I remember thinking how tall everybody looked. It looked like I was walking down a path with huge oak trees just lining the path, and I felt so small. But then I got to the front, and I knew that's where I needed to be. And Sam was standing there with a big grin and loving, warm arms, and he just took me in. And, of course, I told him what I wanted to do. I said, I want Jesus in my heart. And he gave me the biggest grandpa kind of hug, 
And he was just ear-to-ear grinning at the end of the service. Of course, he shared the news with everybody with much joy and a lot of pleasure. I remember what it felt like at that moment to have Christ come into me, to possess me. It was the most powerful moment of my life. My heart was on fire. And I told all of my friends at school and all of my teachers and my family, and people were probably just getting tired of like you know, me coming around them and just telling them all about what Christ had done in my life and how exciting it was to truly be his child. Sam taught me about the love of God, unconditional, gracious love. And I understood what the love of God was and that I had to respond in kind, for my heart would allow nothing less. Our scripture today encapsulates what I felt all those many years ago and still feel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be written on your hearts. Not a little bit of your heart. Not a smidgen of your life. All of it. God desires for my life. And my life were written. For me and my life, excuse me. Were written on my heart. And I was safely held in the palm of his hand where I've been ever since. That's not to say I haven't had spiritual ups and downs. But I was in his palm and then still in his palm. And that's what it means to have the fire of God in your heart. Love. We hear a whole lot about that in this world. Love can mean a lot of things. It could be what you experience when you eat really good French fries. It can be what you feel when you go on the parkway and you see a beautiful field of flowers. It can be what you feel for your spouse, for some of you. Um, It can be a lot of things. Only God can truly define for us what love is and what it should be. Scripture has a lot to say on the topic. We know to love our neighbors. We know to love our enemies. And Solomon speaks beautifully of the romantic love between a husband and a wife. Christ himself is referred to the bridegroom of the church. So what do you think, and this is a setup question, what do you think the most important ingredient in the Christian life is? Is it prayer? It's pretty important. Is it faith? Trusting the heart of God. That's pretty much a requirement. But you know what scripture says? When you go to Corinthians, it says the greatest ingredient in our spiritual life is love. Because out of that love flows everything else. Everything we do comes from the spilling over of the love that comes from our God. If you can picture a cup full 
of the pouring out of the Spirit, of God in you. And it fills to overflowing when you allow him to do that. And the spillover spills over to every part of your life, your family members, your friends, our church. That's what love does. It's the prerequisite, and everything else falls in place. When we love, we will spend time in Scripture, we will worship the Almighty, and we will talk to Him daily. For the overflow of God's love for us, we are moved to love in return. We have need to respond in kind. Turn with me right now. Yep, get them out. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. It's page 2 in the Old Testament in your pew Bible. And some of you in the back row are thinking, geez, I thought I was out of school. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Genesis 2. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25. Keep your finger there because we're going to refer back to it. And as you're looking, let me just express that this passage, while describing the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, can also be used metaphorically for our relationship, our love covenant, our marriage to God. And that's how we're going to use it today. It will give us four laws of a loving marriage with God. Let's look at the first part of verse 24. And let me first read it out loud for everyone in case there's someone who doesn't have access to a Bible. For the cause... For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let's take that first part of verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. This gives us the law of priority. When God designed the marriage covenant... He intended for the relationship to take priority over all human relationships. Leaving in this particular passage does not mean we abandon our parents, but it does denote a shift in the family relationship in which parents relinquish their children so that a new branch of a family tree can be formed. When our relationship with our mate is no longer our first priority, humanly speaking, our marriage will not succeed. That means we put our partners before our kids. Scandalous. But marriage is the foundation of the home. And if the, crack, if the foundation is cracked, the house will not stand. So with our spiritual lives. If we do not make God the priority in our lives, our lives will not thrive. We will be bogged down with fear and frustration and hopelessness. Consider with me what happens when our spouse puts other things like their job or the children or 
their book club or whatever it may be, a hobby, before us. We become jealous of the time and energy they put into other things. Well, likewise, God becomes jealous when we abuse our marriage covenant with him by putting other things before him. In this, relation, excuse me, in this case, jealousy is an intense love, a commitment that demands expression in a relationship that excludes others. Exodus 34, 14 says, Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. The author of design jealousy, that is our god. This speaks of a jealousy that is made legitimate by the fact that we have committed ourselves to the bridegroom. Jealousy is an intolerance of rivalry, rivalry and unfaithfulness. And so God feels protective when we replace him as our first love with other things, church duties, comfort, having fun, work, anything. He created us to love him before anyone or anything else, and he becomes jealous when that relationship is threatened. God knows who loves him as he observes in real terms how we operate in every area of our lives, not just with our tongues, and not with, just with our good intentions. The law of priority. Okay, let's look at the second part of 24. And shall cleave to his wife. This gives us the next law, the law of pursuit. The word cleave means to pursue with great energy and to cling to something zealously. Do you remember the first time you met your mate? Most of us felt excited and intrigued. And once we, were, we decided we were interested in getting to know the other person, we did our very best to impress them. We took more time getting dressed. We tried to take them places we thought they would have fun. We did things for them that we thought that they would like. We gave gifts. We called often, and we spent a lot of time with our partners. If we want our love relationship to remain healthy and meaningful, we need to continue to pursue our partner after the wedding. That's work. Took a lot of work to like be all gussied up and nice, didn't it? Oh. But we need to keep that going. Too often, spiritually speaking, I guess and literally as well, we work very hard in the beginning of a relationship in order to secure our beloved, but once we feel the relationship is secure, we reduce our effort at pursuing our mate until sometimes we take our partner for granted. It's the same with our relationship with God. As new believers, we rejoice at our newfound forgiveness and the unconditional love of the Father. We pursue God by spending time in Scripture, and we pray regularly. We serve in our church, and we give our gifts back to God. But when we lose sight of the seriousness of sin, and we take God for granted, we get lazy, and we stop pursuing him. Human marriage is not simply chemistry, and those of you who have been married more than five minutes know that. 
<laughs> we have to choose to cleave to our mate. We pursue them. So too is our marriage with God, for our God is a jealous God. Let us remember the God of our youth and cling to him. We need to remember the excitement we felt as new believers and then pursue him with fervor. Let's go to verse 25. And they shall become one flesh. This speaks of the law of possession. So we've done priority, we've done pursuit, and now we're on possession. This portion of the Genesis passage is an obvious reference to the sexual union between partners. It is through the sexual union that scripture says we become one flesh. Sexual union is the ultimate expression of emotional intimacy, trust, and unity. Conversely, if we go outside of the marriage for sexual gratification, we damage trust and intimacy. The unity within the covenant is damaged, and sometimes that damage is reparable. Intercourse and sexual activity affirms the custody each partner has of, the one, of each other as a one-flesh relationship, as a partnership, part of a covenantal relationship. In our marriage with God, we have allowed ourselves to be possessed by Christ. With him, we establish a spiritual one-flesh relationship in which he, as bridegroom, claims his rights to our lives, and we enjoy the inheritance of God's kingdom. We submit ourselves to him, knowing that he will love us sacrificially, even unto death. Possession also denotes the merging of assets. Everyone, everything owned by individuals should become jointly owned and managed in mass when they marry. If one partner withholds and is unwilling to merge any aspect of ownership, he or she is in violation of the law of possession. When we enter into a spiritual marriage covenant with God, ownership of our bodies, materials, our lives, switches from independent ownership to recognition of God's ownership of us. If we do not submit to his authority, we cannot follow him. If there is any part of our lives that we do not submit to his authority, our children, our marriages, work, decision-making, we're saying that that aspect of our lives is more important than Christ. Those things become idols, and we are in violation of the commandment to have no other gods. Luke 14.33 warns, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That's pretty strong words. Finally, yes, I did say finally. <laughs> Let's look at the second part of verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here we find the law, the fourth law of purity. God intended marriage to be a place of total nakedness. In fact, total openness physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. There was nothing to hide. There was no shame. 
Marriage was meant to be a union of total exposure to one another, and yet it was safe. Adam and Eve lost their pure gift of intimacy when they allowed sin into their marriage and into their spiritual marriage with God. Sin destroys an atmosphere of intimacy by replacing it with fear and shame. The delicate issues in our lives cannot be safely exposed without pain and embarrassment. God calls us to purity. As the bride of Christ, we are to remain unblemished. Scripture is clear. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death, separation from God. But for those of us who are saved, that does not have to be a permanent condition. Sin separates us from the Father and therefore cuts us off from our supply of power and peace. Only purification through forgiveness can restore our intimacy with God. And let me make a brief aside here. Now, we don't like to talk about sin. It makes us uncomfortable. We sound like those crazy Bible thumpers who are like all up in your business being negative and judgmental and doing their finger at you, looking down their bony, crooked nose at you. We don't like it. It's not comfortable. But the reality is, is that it's a very real aspect of Christian life. Avoiding the S word is detrimental to our relationship with God. Let me give you an analogy. When you buy a car, the owner's manual from the manufacturer is usually in the glove box. We trust the manufacturer to provide information on how this machine works best because he made it. If a warning is in the manual to not do a certain thing or to take care of a car in a certain way or damage will result, then we trust that the manufacturer knows that about the car, and we trust it. We realize the instructions, they're not personal. We all get the same manual if we bought the same car. And the manufacturer is not telling us do's and don'ts to keep us from having fun. He wants you to drive fast. He doesn't care if you get a ticket. The manufacturer tells us things in order for us to get the most out of the car and to prevent damage from occurring. Well, God's the same way. He gave us a manual, too. He's given us a manual to follow so that our lives will be optimal and so we will not get hurt. Sin hurts us. It damages our lives. And it requires us to return our car to the manufacturer for a fix. We do a lot better to avoid accidents. As Christ's bride, we are to be pure. In effect, we are to remove sin from our lives and do an about-face in order to enjoy an unencumbered marriage with God. If we present ourselves to our groom, he promises to purify us. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That means fair. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All of it. 
not some of it, all of it. So as we close, let's reconsider some things for a minute. To love God is to make him a priority, is to pursue him fervently, is to allow him to take possession of all we are and have. And it requires us to seek to remain pure for our holy God. Love is an action. It motivates. It is the greatest gift from God that we have. Remember your first love. Your marriage to the bridegroom. Recall the days when he was the most important thing in your life. When you wanted everyone you knew to hear about how he made you feel. When he was your priority. When you pursued him. When you allowed him to take possession of you. And your heart was pure and on fire. Do you remember? If you haven't felt those things for a while, it's time to do something about it. Christ is what you're looking for. He is what you seek. Come to the Father with a contrite heart, and he promises to wash away all sin and guilt. You will be restored. You'll have that love and feeling again. If you've never felt a burning love for God and have never accepted Christ, I urge you to do so. It'll be the best thing you ever do. It's the most important decision you will ever make. And all you have to do is tell God you're sorry and you want him in your heart. It's that simple. Join me in prayer. God of all compassion and grace, we bow our heads in submission. We are your disciples and we want to serve you better. Spirit, move among us and urge your disciples to enter a spiritual marriage with you through Christ. Motivate us to seek transformation. Rekindle our love for you. Set our hearts on fire. And hold at bay all distractions, all evil, so that your will will be done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.